0: Mapping the Frontier Between Traditional and Indie Publishing, and today's guest is Margot Atwell.
1: Margot Atwell is the head of publishing at Kickstarter, where she helps authors and publishers build community and find support for their creative projects. Previously, Margot was publisher at Beaufort Books, an independent publisher of fiction and nonfiction books. Her first book, The Insider's Guide to Book Publishing Success, was published in February 2013. In 2014, she raised almost $10,000 on Kickstarter to launch Gut Punch Press and fund her second book, Derby Life, Stories, Advice, and Wisdom from the Roller Derby World. She sends out the On the Book Substack newsletter about money and publishing and is currently writing, Don't Steal This Book, Why Paying for Words is Radical and Necessary. Welcome, Margot.
2: Thanks so much for having me on here. Yeah, thanks yeah.
1: for being here. Really
0: excited to have you on um, yeah. since... I went to that, the, the next page Kickstarter conference, I was just like, I really want to talk with you about this sort of thing.
1: Thanks
0: um, so much, yeah. So Karina, was- do you want to,
2: Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going <laughs> to say, um, the next page was a really fun event to put on. Um, and I learned so much from all the amazing people who spoke.
0: Are you going to do any more of them?
2: Uh, I think it's still an open question. It was not originally intended to be an annual thing, although I think every time someone does something, it feels like it should be annual. Um, I guess if at a point in the future, I feel like there's a lot more to say that we could help people say, um, I would consider it. But um, for now, I'm putting a lot more of my time into helping other people run events and conferences.
0: Excellent. Um, so let's, let's talk about roller derby.
1: Yeah, let's. Okay. So our first question uh, is, tell us a little bit about your experience with roller derby, which you have
2: written an entire book about. Um, in 20, I'm sorry, 2005, I had just graduated from college and my mom gave me a newspaper article in the New York times. It was talking about roller derby and I thought she was suggesting I play roller derby because I used to play ice hockey and, you know, I skated a lot growing up. Um, She wanted me to see it because a Smith alum, uh, which is my alma mater was mentioned in the article, but uh, yeah. So she accidentally, my mother accidentally recruited me to the sport of roller derby. (laughs) Um, And I started learning to skate in 2006 um, because I had, been a rollerblader, I'd been an ice skater, but quad roller skates, which is what Derby is played on, they're very different. Um, Mm -hmm. That's actually what is kind of like taking off on Instagram and TikTok right now is uh, old school quad roller skates. Oh, cool. Um, Yeah. Uh, So I started playing in 2007 and then um, joined Gotham Girls Roller Derby in 2008. Mm -hmm. I skated for over a decade with them on teams basically at every level of the sport, um, including the all-stars, uh, which is Gotham girls roller derby's, um, internationally ranked team, um, Dang. Over-achiever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I retired as a skater about two years ago and I'm still involved on the board of directors as a coach. Um, and my wife still plays. Awesome. So I'm okay. still got a skate in.
1: Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um,
2: well, go ahead.
1: No, 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 you. <laughs> oh, no, I was just going to ask. So what was, when you were trying out for the team, like what is that sort of like audition process like or whatever? So
2: I tried out twice for Gotham and it was, it was a little bit different. Um, the first time, uh, they had actually lost their space, their skating space. Um, so the the original uh tryout was at empire roller rink which is the birthplace of roller disco so a bunch of us showed up there and i had been learning to dance skate there so that space felt really comfortable it had these beautiful wooden floors and then by the time callbacks happened a few months later um which normally doesn't take a few months but uh, they had their own warehouse and so I showed up there and I had never skated on a sport court before, which is a really slick plastic surface. So that was a surprise. I didn't make it that first time, but then I went and skated with a league that was starting in Westchester called suburbia roller derby. And when I came back the next year to try out again, um, I was a lot better at my skates under me. Um, But the second time uh, Gotham had realized that it's very hard to learn how to play roller derby if you don't have anyone coaching you so they did a few um a few sort of like one-off skate sessions teaching people the skills that you had to demonstrate in the in the tryouts because back when I first skated like you kind of just showed up and you were good enough or you weren't you know you may be like I was roller skating on the cracked sidewalks of Bed-Stuy and mm-hmm. you know, learning how to do turnaround toe stops by like watching myself in a van. It was very, <laughs> very <laughs> DIY. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then, um, but over time, the sport has gotten more and more, I say professionalized because it's gotten much more advanced, but it is still not a professional sport. Uh, everyone pays dues to play. So now Gotham has three levels of, basic training. So you learn how to skate, then you learn how to uh, do contact, and then you learn actually how to play the sport in these three different levels. So it's, it's really come a long way in since I've discovered it, like, I don't know, 14 years ago. Wow.
0: Sounds like it's really friendly to people who want to learn.
2: It really is. I think, In some sports cultures, there's a culture of hazing, and that's, it's completely the opposite in derby. Um, I feel like the sport itself is such a hazing process that um, (laughs) that people are always so generous and welcoming to new skaters.
0: Oh, that's great. What was your name? M-Dash. M-Dash. Oh, that is the most (laughs) publishing person thing I've ever
1: heard. I was really pleased when I came up with that one. (laughs) <laughs> how exactly did that go? how did you come up with that name
2: um well i was an editor at the time and uh i was pretty fast um because i had this old hockey background um and so i liked uh i liked the sort of like speed punctuation girl's name triple pun yeah
0: yeah you're you're speedy and your name starts with an m and you're an editor like it all comes yeah, together. It all makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the um uh the miscommunication with the mom thing happened to me recently because Corinne, you and I were watching. We were doing a co-watch of the new Suspiria movie, mm-hmm. and Mom's like, "What are, what are you guys doing right now?" And I was like, "Oh, we're watching Suspiria. It's like a bunch of witches at a ballet school." And I think she had this idea that it was like Harry Potter for ballerinas. <laughs> <laughs> What? I would watch oh. that. It's, I know, but it's you know very not. So I caught her before she went and watched it. I was I was like, actually, it's a bloodbath, and she goes, oh, oh, "Okay, never mind." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, all right, so so um m dash leading to leading yeah. back to the editorial experience. What made you want to get into publishing in the first place?
2: So as soon as I could read. I was a diehard reader and I started writing when I was very, very young. Um, and then at a certain point in like middle school-ish, high school, I realized that there was someone between the writer and the reader um, and that that was a job with a salary. And so I was like, "That that's it. Um, I, I want to help make books. I want to read books. I want to write books. Um, I've always been extremely single-minded in that area. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I was involved in lit mags in high school. I co-founded one in college. And then um, I barely ever looked at any other field. <laughs> so do
0: you prefer more literary writing? Or do you have genre favorites or?
2: Yeah, I do. I, um, I mean, I studied poetry, so I really love poetry. I, I like a lot of different types of fiction. Um, but if you were to look at my bookshelves and pick out the genre that's most represented, it would be uh, sci fi and fantasy.
1: Oh, great.
0: Cool. I love it.
1: Corinne? All right. So, you began your publishing career at a literary agency. Um, so, what skills that you learned there have been particularly useful as your career has kind of grown and
2: changed? It was a really, really great introduction to how the book world works, so I would say that the fundamental understanding of just how books are sold uh, has been really helpful, and also the fact that um, that book publishing is a business you know that sounds silly um, but I think you know I was graduating and I was very lofty and I wanted to edit the Great American novel as so many people do. Okay. Um, And then just approaching it from the agent side where your job is to sell the book um, and you have to understand how to take what's amazing about a 300 page novel and boil it into like a single page or even a single sentence and then tell people about it. That is a skill that um, I started learning there that has been with me in everything else I've done in publishing. Just the idea of taking something huge and sprawling and nuanced and turning it into an idea that someone can grasp in an instant.
0: I'd say that's a real key, like, to publishing, like, at the core of what you're supposed to be doing. Um, Yeah, and also you said that you were single-minded when you were talking about going into books and publishing, but, like, I went into publishing because you can be single-minded, but also you get to kind of try everything if you really want to. And from looking at your resume, like, you've really done all kinds of different areas of publishing, and that seems like a, a lot of fun.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've covered a lot of ground. I'm someone that really likes learning and trying new things, so I have I have gotten involved in a lot of different elements of publishing, and it's one of the reasons I really like my job at Kickstarter is I get to play a tiny role in hundreds of different projects coming to life, um, and you know, do something that's super helpful to the publisher or the author. Um, but then they have to go off and do all the hard work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um, how many forms of publishing do you head at Kickstarter?
2: Um, so I oversee publishing, which is a category that has about 17 subcategories, um, including literary journals, zines, podcasts, and radio um, children's books, YA, so many other things, academic, translation. Um, I also oversee comics and journalism. So basically, if it relates to words, I probably have worked on it at Kickstarter.
0: That's a lot. That is a lot. (laughs) I was going to say 17. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) And podcasts and journalism and comics. And, like, do you ever get overwhelmed?
2: I do. I (laughs) I really like to help people and I really believe in the work I do. So one of my biggest challenges always is how do I say no to some things so that I carve out space to focus on areas that are really important to me? And I think, um, I mean, most people I imagine have that problem of, of having too many things to work on, um, but that, that focusing and saying no to someone that's really hard to me.
0: Yeah I think we all struggle with that a little bit um, especially as people who like want to make other people happy and like work with them to see that their work is elevated and like shown to everyone Um, but what are some of the most uh, unusual and fun or memorable projects that you've worked on?
2: Oh gosh! How long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> <I> mean...
1: <laughs> as much time as you want to give us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: so, one of the sort of career defining defining projects I've gotten to work on is uh, in 2015, Copper Canyon got the right to publish uh, about 20 previously unpublished Pablo Neruda poems. Oh wow! And I'm a huge Neruda fan. I took a Neruda class in college, um, and So I reached out to Copper Canyon cold, just having read that they were thinking about crowdfunding in the newspaper. And I spent a few months convincing them that Kickstarter was a good thing for them to try out. And so then I worked with them on this project. And they raised over $100,000 for a poetry project from over 1,400 backers from around the world. And that, I mean, getting to work on new poetry by Neruda, like, I didn't think that would be possible, no matter where I worked. So that was really amazing. And the folks at Copper Canyon are so professional and passionate and just really kind. Um, so they were great to work with.
0: Oh my god,
2: that's
1: incredible!
2: Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, one that I'm working on right now, which is sort of the other end of the spectrum, is uh, Brandon Sanderson is a best-selling fantasy writer. He is in part famous for finishing Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series. So he has been writing and publishing books for 20 years. He's been publishing them for 20 years. He's been writing them for longer. And he has started doing these leather bound editions of his work. So he ran a few pre-orders for leather bounds on his website. And then he wanted to do the way of Kings, which is a really long book. It was going to be two volumes. Um, And he just decided that he wanted to do a real pre-order and make sure he had enough money to cover it, um, rather than just like going out on a limb and trying it. So I've been working with him and his team since December or January, and they just launched a project to make this two-volume, $200 leather-bound edition of Way of Kings for the 10th anniversary. Uh, they launched that on Tuesday, and it broke the all-time publishing record in less than 10 minutes. Oh, my God. What? Yeah. Oh. The previous most funded project was the second uh, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls mm-hmm. um, a few years ago, and they were at, I think, $866,000. This one ju- has passed $5 million on Friday. So.
1: Holy shit. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's incredible.
2: Wow. Yeah. It In some ways, it's really, it feels like it has been a long time coming. Um, and I'm hoping that this is something that the publishing industry at large sees and realizes the potential. Um, one of the things I've been talking about, writing about, you know, doing this book about is basically the publishing industry model is broken. Um, yep. It was designed at a very different time. It does not take into account all the realities of today. And running a pre-order campaign in a a manner that puts the money first Mm -hmm. is a huge benefit to publishers and to authors and to readers. So um, I would like to see a lot more publishers thinking about using Kickstarter as a way to raise money at the beginning. but also as a way to connect more deeply with their author's fans and build a stronger fan base because that reader connection is something that publishers left to booksellers for years and years and years, which made sense, but the world has changed and publishing has changed slower.
0: So, can you break down for for maybe people who haven't really been paying attention, like the different steps and um, the process of running a campaign for a book on Kickstarter?
2: Sure. One of the reasons I like Kickstarter for publishing most is that the steps to run a project really fit into the process to publish a book. So, for example, I typically encourage people to run the project when they need the money. So when they have to pay an editor, when they have to pay a cover designer, um, when they have to pay for a print run. Uh, Ideally you do as much work as possible, finish the manuscript, edit it a couple times yourself, have a beta reader, basically get it as close to publication as possible um, because that means as little work is left to do for you after the campaign. And that makes everything a lot easier. So Kickstarter is an online platform where you bring, you tell the story of what you're making. You can use a video, you can use text, images, GIFs, audio. um, And you tell the story, you know, hi, I'm Margot Atwell. I'm writing a nonfiction book about roller derby. I'm the perfect person to write this because I've been playing for a million years and everything I do is roller derby um, here's how far I am with the manuscript, here's my plan for it, here's when you'll get your copy, I hope you'll pledge for a copy, share with a friend, and join me for the ride. Um, that right there could have been my my video. So you put that up and then you offer people rewards. Mostly the rewards people want are a copy of the book you're making, um, ebook, print, signed, um, if you're an artist, sometimes people offer original art. Um, sometimes people, especially in the fantasy and sci-fi space, offer Tuckerizations, where basically they write you into the story or they let you name a character, which is really cool. That is really cool. Wow. So that's the kind of thing that, like, for a huge fan, like, you know, getting to be literally written into someone's universe is uh, – it's not possible through traditional publishing. It's something um, where it really connects you with the, with the writer, with the publisher, etc. So you set your financial goal, say, for one of my projects, I needed $7,000 to pay for art, editing, printing, etc. So I say, I need $7,000. If you all pledge $7,000 in the next 30 days, uh, it'll be amazing, I'll get to make my book and I'll send you your copy. And then people start pledging. Um, They have that 30 days. It could be 15. It could be 60. Um, You get to decide. And then if people pledge as much or more than your goal amount in the time allotted, then everyone's card is charged. You get the money and you get to go out and make your thing and then turn that around and send it out into the world.
0: And if not, if you don't make it.
2: If you don't reach your goal, um, nobody's card is charged, you're not on the hook to deliver your rewards. And that's actually, um, Spike Trotman, who runs Iron Circus Comics, says, a failed Kickstarter is a dodged bullet because previous to Kickstarter, you could still self-publish and maybe you would print 2000 copies, you'd put it on your credit card or you'd save up money for months or years. print your 2000 copies you put them in your garage and you would sell 10 of them
1: yeah
2: um and so kickstarter learning that you have not figured out precisely how to reach your audience or how to sell your story before you print it that's a huge benefit to a self-published author and it's also you know if a publisher thinks they've got a huge hit on their hand and then they just like miss the mark with their campaign, then they realize they need to do more market research, they need to do more audience building, they maybe need to change the format, the price, etc. But it really is good market research. Um, and then you can come back to Kickstarter and try again once you've sort of like built a bigger audience or retooled your, you know, your format or whatever else. And we do see that people are very likely to succeed when they run it a second time
0: makes a lot of sense. I used to not understand um, the not getting to keep the money thing, but you've really explained it well, I think, um, in a way that benefits the person running the campaign.
2: Yeah, we we see that all or nothing funding, which is what we call our model, is a lot safer for both the backer and the creator. Because if I ask for $7,000 and promise you a nice, you know, 300 page, you know, perfect bound book that's well edited and all that and then I get $3,000, how do I make up that extra $4,000? So either I have to save money out of my own pocket, I have to go and chase down additional money, or I have to give you something that is worse than I promised you. And so none of those options are great. Um, So that's really why we believe in the all or nothing funding model. And we also see that it works. Uh, So I think that the... The all-or-nothing model is really scary for a lot of people, the idea that you could put work in and not get something back. But we see that there's a huge gulf between people who launch a project and, like, really haven't understood the system or done the work and then people who launch a project and succeed. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the publishing category, for projects that have at least 25 backers, 80% of them reach or exceed their goal. Oh, wow. So if you do a good job telling your story and you start telling people about it and you, you know, get the word out to your followers and your readers and your friends, there's a really, really high chance that you'll meet your goal or even exceed it.
0: Oh, uh, Corinne, do you want to new-
1: do the next Oh, one? sure. I actually have a question before our next question. Oh, so, <laughs> uh, and now, um, so after your success with uh, working with Copper Canyon, do you feel like other publishers' attitudes are sort of are they a little more open to the idea of crowdfunding or do you still feel like it's kind of a hard sell for them?
2: I definitely saw that independent publishers started to change their opinion after the Copper Canyon project. And I've worked with a lot of others since then. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Milkweed ran a project to start a bookstore and has run another project since then. Um, Actually Tupelo Press is an amazing poetry project live right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I could be listing amazing publishers all day. Um, yeah, But yeah, so, so I would say that the perception of crowdfunding has really changed over time. And I think that is partly the model of the people who are trying it. And I think back when I started at Kickstarter in 2014, people saw crowdfunding and they thought it was like begging for money on the internet. Mm-hmm. And so I've really worked to help people understand that it's a great way to tell your story and connect with your community. Um, And that you don't have to say, help me, I desperately need your money. You can say, I'm doing something super cool, come be part of it and I'll send you a copy. And I think that that second message resonates so much more. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay, so um, as you said earlier, too, traditional the, pu- the traditional publishing model is broken um, in many, many ways. So, what do you think sort of is the most pressing issue facing the industry right now? And do you notice that any progress is being made?
2: So, I, I'm I'm going to cheat. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. So, when I ran the next page, uh, which is a free digital conference that. Um, that we hosted at Kickstarter, um, that's actually still up on Kickstarter. I can share you the link later. Mm -hmm. Um, We had four main conversations, which were my perception of the main issues facing the publishing industry. So one of them was diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. One was money. One was technology. And one was community. Mm -hmm. And I think that diversity and inclusion is extremely visible right now as an issue, but it's been extremely visible as an issue for quite a while without us making major strides. I am cautiously hopeful that some real change will be made as a result of the attention and um, and sort of focus that people are putting on it this year, but In 2015, when the first Lee and Lowe Diversity Baseline Study came out, the whole industry understood at that point that we were so white. The industry really privileged people from upper economic backgrounds, and uh, it was very straight, it's very cis, it's very abled. And mostly what has happened since then has been lip service, or else it has been people of color doing the work until they can't be ignored anymore and people there are so many black women people of color of all genders who have done phenomenal stuff but it shouldn't be on a marginalized community to gain access to a space it should be on white people to say this is broken we need to fix it and we need to invest in it Um, so i think that diversity inclusion is one issue and I would say, I'd say we get a D plus for the work we've been doing And I hope that I can give us a C plus or a B plus by next year. Um, And my, oh, I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) Oh, no, um, that, that has a lot to do with another question I'd like to ask, but if you want to continue on your path right now, then we can talk about it later.
2: (laughs) Sure. Um, Another major issue in publishing is money. It's who gets paid, how much they get paid, what they get paid for, and how the economic system of the industry works. So um, I think most people don't understand that every dollar paid by a reader, how small a percent goes to everyone who's doing the work and how large a percent goes to most often Amazon or Ingram or Barnes and Noble. Um, And... God, I could talk about the problems, uh, the financial problems in publishing all day. But basically, I think that we need to design a new system based on the realities of 2020 and 2030 and 2040. Um, and just kind of like undo all of the problematic economic choices that the industry made literally 100 years ago um, and that we've sort of carried forward.
0: hmm Hung on to no matter what. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, going back to the diversity inclusion piece and also kind of folding it in with Amazon, um, when Blackout the books, Blackout the bestseller list was trending, I noticed, you know, we're extremely critical of Amazon, all of us here. Um, uh, I noticed there were several self published Black authors on Twitter who said, that because they've been marginalized from traditional publishing so long, there were many people who um, are on Amazon solely and that people saying don't link to Amazon at all for Blackout the bestseller List were excluding them once more from the movement. So kind of keeping those two things in your head at once, like what, what might help that going forward to like both, divest, I guess, from Amazon and also support authors who have been ignored by the traditional system, particularly uh, Black authors.
2: It's a huge problem. And full disclosure, my book Derby Life is up on Amazon through Print On Demand. Um, So Amazon has gained so much market power Mm -hmm. that if your book is not on Amazon, it's as if it doesn't exist. Um, I do work with a few publishers who don't use Amazon, um, but they've had to build up their own systems and that is expensive and time consuming. And it doesn't work so well if you're just a single book author or a single author selling a a number of books, it's a lot harder. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's like individual issues and systemic issues and what an individual could do would be, potentially diversify their book and make sure that they're selling it through Ingram as well, because that gets them into other channels, including bookshop.org, which is a growing company, but um, but they donate money to independent bookstores and also independent bookstores can put up a storefront on bookshop.org so that they get a larger portion of the revenue. Um, that said, that's still filtering a lot of money directly to Ingram, which doesn't really have any competitors at this point, which is a huge problem. Right. In a systemic issue, we need 10 more bookshop.orgs. We need so many more competitors um, because Amazon has been able to gain the power they have because, well, I can't <laughs> even, <laughs> that's, that's a money topic. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, because they undercut other players in the business, because they were willing to take a loss for a really long time to gather up market power, because they understood the potential of the internet way earlier than a lot of book publishing did. Um, And now they own so much market share that it's hard for someone to compete, whether they be an independent brick and mortar bookstore or a chain brick and mortar or a website or anything else but we could as an industry say that we want to divest from Amazon. We just have to create alternatives and that's something that's bigger than one individual author. So I, I think we need to, to balance these different ideas. Um, And we also have to understand that there's not going to be any solution that doesn't harm some player because selling books on the internet can cut out independent bookstores and selling books in independent bookstores makes it harder for indie authors and small publishers without distribution so i think that sometimes we flatten everything into like evil and good mm-hmm. but it's a lot more nuanced and complex than that
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we were talking about on one of our our uh, recent episodes, we were speaking to a couple of children's book authors who were talking a lot about being able to hold two thoughts in your head at once um, and being able to change. And it sounds like what I'm hearing from a lot of our guests is is the concept of decentralization that you're talking about, where we need more competition, we need more places for people to be able to go to get books. Um, And yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting what you say about how someone gets hurt whatever in whatever you're doing so that's that's a tough pull to swallow but
2: yeah I think the challenge is we need to do a lot of things
1: mm-hmm. to
2: pull to sort of get rid of our addiction to Amazon um, one of the things that we'll have to do is be willing to pay more money for books and that's really hard I think especially when the book that you buy from Amazon looks like the book you buy from bookshop looks like the book you buy from word bookstore down the street right. you know it's a lot easier for um you know if you're buying an heirloom tomato at a farmer's market you get to like see the farmer and it's in a prettier you know like an earthy package and you just you feel very virtuous for it um so i've always wondered like can we do something like that in publishing like artisanal publishing hmm Mm-hmm. What Everything would that look
0: happen. like? And you get to see the farmer smile.
2: Yeah, the farmer is an <laughs> author. <laughs> and I think part of that is demystifying the publication process because since every every you know perfect bound paperback basically looks the same, whether it was print on demand via Amazon or Ingram, or you know published by a big five publisher. Um, you can't instantly tell, you know, you don't have the markers of, Oh, well, this was small batch and this is not, but I think that some of the same language um, and showing people like how it works and where your dollar goes, that kind of storytelling could help us shift the, the audience a little bit because the same way that people will, you know, prioritize locally grown fruit and, um, you know smaller non-chain coffee shops and pay a little more for it you would think that those people would be able to to find it in their budget to pay a little bit more for a book if they understood the harm that was caused by it, their discount
0: okay so you think it's it's education for all about how everything works and, uh, and like you were saying earlier, how little money trickles to the people who are actually working on the book when it goes through like those larger, um, outlets.
2: I think that's certainly one, uh, one angle we have to approach it with.
0: hmm Um, yeah.
2: Great. I'll take the next question. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so it's some of the writing that you've done, you've been really transparent about how poorly the publishing industry pays. Uh, what can people who work in book publishing do to try to improve those conditions? Uh,
2: I'm not going to be flippant and just say pay people more because (laughs) uh, I understand how complex that is. Um, Well, one thing that would really instantaneously help and that I think we are super positioned to do right now, decentralize the book publishing industry and pull it out of New York. You know, Mm -hmm. I say this as a New Yorker who (laughs) has lived in New York for over 12 years. Yeah. I was born in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's no reason in this age where we're all sitting in different places, having this, uh, live stream conversation or this uh, video conversation, there's no reason with the amazing tools that we have that everyone needs to be in the same room. And if I'm making an entry-level salary of $30,000, that goes pretty far in some cities in Ohio. It does not go very far in New York city. Mm -hmm. So the same salary, if you're able to live somewhere else, uh, could go a lot further. And I think that that also starts to get at the question of diversity and inclusion, Um, because having having more earning power is going to help people who, for example, had to take student loans. Mm and being able to work somewhere outside of New York City you know that that pulls in different perspectives that are currently really underrepresented in the publishing industry like I think publishing publishes a lot of books about New York City because a lot of us live in New York City and I think that a lot of people who come to books are looking around but they don't see themselves and That would be one area where we could expand the pie for everyone is if people are seeing themselves in books again and again and again, they're going to buy those books and they're going to come back for more and they're going to recommend them to people who are like them. Right.
0: Um, so, speaking of wor- workers being paid more, y- uh, you just went through, well, I guess, gosh, how long ago was it? Um, Kickstarter went through the process of uh, unionizing, right? The workers at Kickstarter. Can you talk about how that worked and what uh, what effect that's had on both Kickstarter and then, the, you know, the people who work there?
2: Sure. I can talk a little bit about it. I was classified as a manager. Right. Um, so much of the actual unionizing effort I've heard about secondhand. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically starting in 2017, people started talking about unionizing even that far back. And then in 2018, um, there was a real flashpoint within Kickstarter where people started to realize that they wanted to have more of a voice in what the company was doing. Mm -hmm. And they believe that the only way to do that was by creating a union. So um, I would say like fall of 2018 through late 2019 was an extremely drawn out unionizing effort. And Kickstarter's CEO said in, I think May of 2019 that he was not going to recognize the union. Um, So when workers unionize, they can say, we would like to be recognized as the union of Kickstarter. And then the company has two options. They can voluntarily recognize them, in which case the bargaining starts right away, or they can say, no, you have to go through uh, the National Labor Review Board and do an election and have it certified and make sure that the majority of workers truly want this. Mm -hmm. So um, after May-ish, when uh, the CEO said, no, we won't voluntarily recognize, then it was a very long public campaign trying to get critical mass of people who, um, who said that they wanted to be part of the union and they would vote yes. And the election was January, 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the results came out February, 2020, and uh, the majority had voted to unionize. And within about two months, Kickstarter went through a pretty big round of layoffs and the union, um, before they would even negotiated a contract, their first negotiation was severance and um, terms around the layoffs. And so the union was able to negotiate really favorable terms for severance, for continued healthcare, especially in light of the pandemic Mm -hmm. and um, a few other terms such as recall rights, where if Kickstarter wants to hire someone with a certain job title in the next year, they have to offer that position to the person who had that job title first. So Mm -hmm. it's not great. Layoffs are always terrible and hard, but I feel so much better that my colleagues who were laid off, have enough money and time and health insurance to get them to their next step, mm-hmm. versus what might have happened if we didn't have a union.
1: Wow, that came down to
0: the wire. Yeah,
2: that's yeah, it's
0: intense.
2: Uh, wow. Well, I mean, I'm
0: I'm glad to hear uh, that that happened. Um, sometimes, even when you have a union, it doesn't work out
2: very well, pals.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, actually, that's
2: my opinion one of my colleagues, Oriana Leckert, who was a huge uh, supporter and um, advocate within the union, had gone through, had used to work for Powell's, so she really had that in her head as she was going through all of this.
0: Yeah, I'm, I, th- I can see how that would, like, teach you a, a lot of lessons. I only worked at Powell's for, like, three months, but, you know, your first day you talk to your union rep, they're like, let's give you the entire history. And it's like, wow, I had no idea that this was so complicated. Um, But that's, we're talking about Kickstarter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, like, what what do we have left? Um, Well, tell us about
2: Signs of Change. Sure. Yeah. So Signs of Change is a sort of open call for projects that I originally came up with I've been thinking about something like this for years, but originally I started working on it last August, so almost a year ago. And we're inviting people to make broadsides, zines, posters, basically any kind of ephemera um, where you share your ideas with an audience, with the world, etc. cetera. Um, I knew that this summer and fall, we would be seeing a lot of political activity. I did not understand how urgent and important it would be. Um, I thought it would be quite important and urgent. I didn't realize it would be literally life or death. Um, and so we're inviting people to come to Kickstarter to to run just really small projects. Um, you know, maybe enough money for, uh, you know, like a long stapler and a pile of paper and some money to pay some contributors or, um, you know, for time on your local, um, like, vandercook printer or something like that uh, if you're in a place that is open enough for you to use that Um, but basically yeah it's just a way to create something and share a message with other people um, and raise enough money that you're not going out of pocket on it so i'm really hoping that people will participate whether it's you know a zine about backyard gardening whether it's a poster about black lives matter whether it's a broadside of their poetry, like there are so many different ways to participate in this.
0: Yeah, uh, countless ways. I'm, I'm just, you know, listing in my head everything that we're seeing every single day that just, mm-hmm. you know, it's always something new. <laughs> but yeah. that's, it's, it almost seems like you're, it, it's like you can do a grassroots campaign in your own town, like based on, on Kickstarter, like it's like the centralized thing that kind of goes out into all these different communities. That's really neat. Thanks. Mm -hmm. And what's the the timeline on that
2: again? So it launches tomorrow, July 13th, Mm -hmm. and it runs through the end of the summer. But honestly, the reason I'm doing this is just to show that you can bring a really small focused short project to Kickstarter. I think people think that you have to be doing like a whole novel or like a, an illustrated comic or, you know, a drone or something. Um, but Kickstarter really is like a community powered platform for spreading ideas.
1: Awesome. Um, Corinne, do you have any more questions? Um, the, you know, the last question I had actually was something that I feel like we used to ask every guest, um, but what are you reading right now?
2: What am I reading? I'm reading Chilling Effect, okay. which is, um, I'm going to look up the author because yeah. uh, uh, Valerie Valdez, um, I hope I said her name right. Uh, it is a really amazing space opera heist situation. It's basically Whoa. like uh, Firefly plus uh, Hitchhiker's Guide plus a little of Cavalcanti's space opera. Um, it's amazing. It's, it's really funny and gripping. And I read half of it yesterday. So damn, wow. Um, once we hang up, I'll just go back and read the other half. Yeah. <laughs> wow.
0: Corinne, what are you reading?
1: What am I reading? Uh, I'm reading, uh, s- um, oh my God, now of course, like I, I feel like I should prepare my <laughs> an answer now. My mind goes blank. Um, I'm re- oh, I'm still reading uh, So You Want to Talk About Race. So I'm almost done with that one um and then i'm reading uh the underground railroad which oh. has been on my bookshelf for a couple of years and i never got around to reading and i think emily i think you loaned that to me actually yeah. didn't you <laughs> so i should probably <laughs> give that back to you eventually um so I, i've read it before yeah oh, i, I yeah. won and you don't need it back
0: well i went to um oh what was that what what Which conference did we have in Portland last year?
2: Uh, AWP. That was it.
0: (laughs) I won a copy from Pen America, uh, a signed copy of, so that's why I just, you can give it, you don't even have to give it back. It's yours. Oh, perfect. Okay, good. (laughs) Pass it on
1: to someone. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Emily, what are you reading?
0: I'm still reading Braiding Sweetgrass um, Uh because I didn't. I always get this thing in my head where I have to like finish the book. You're like, how long is it going to take me to get through all these pages? It's like, I don't have to do that. I can yes. slowly. And if there's any book, Robin Wall Kimmerer is the author. And if there's any book that I want to slowly work my way through, it feels like the right book. Just mm-hmm. every chapter is a beautiful essay about like the natural environment and indigenous yeah. like uh, botany And I love it. It's, it's just a great experience, but I have been reading it for like three months, which is kind of a long stretched out time for me to actually finish a book and not just abandon it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm doing. Um, Margo, is there anything else that you uh, are excited to talk about? Oh, can you tell us a little bit about your next book before we uh, sign off here?
2: Sure. Um, so it's called uh, Don't Steal This Book, Why Paying for Words is Radical and Necessary. Um, and it's been something I've been researching and writing in fits and start for quite a long time. I think I've been researching it for five or six years and really just started writing last year. Um, and basically I'm talking about, uh, of so everything I was talking about here is how problematic the way money works in publishing is and how we can change it, and how, you know, individuals, readers, writers, uh, publishing, and society at large can take steps to change it.
0: Awesome. Um, And where can people find you
2: online? Um, I'm on Twitter as at Margot Atwell, M-A-R-G-O-T-A-T-W-E-L-L, and I write a newsletter, I sometimes write a newsletter uh, called On the Books, which is on Substack, and that's that's the best place to follow me if you really want to find out more about money and publishing.
0: I really liked, um, I think it's the latest one that was up there, was um, a, where you pretty much break down the what you were paid in publishing and the way that you lived on um, as you went through your career. I think that's really eye-opening for people, especially when they do want to get into publishing. So that's, that's a good one. I recommend people read it. Thanks.
2: So. Yeah, I think when you're getting into publishing, you hear, oh, it doesn't pay, but you don't understand what that means, especially if you have been living at home or living at school and you're surviving on loans. You really don't understand what that means until you see all your bills and see what your rent is, especially in New York, um, and just how far that money does not go. And honestly, when I was doing research for that piece, um, I was appalled to see how little the entry-level publishing salaries increased in the decade since I made one. Um, mm-hmm. They were bad back then, and they're mm-hmm. really bad now.
0: And I remember that discussion on one of the panels at, on the next page too. So um, that was the one that Dong Wan and Joe Beal were on, right? We've had both of them on our show, so that's, <laughs> nice. yeah, yeah. So um, I'll link to that as well Great. In, our, in our show notes. Mm-hmm. All right, and you can find us on Facebook at Hybrid Pub Scout, on Twitter at Hybrid Pub Scout, and Instagram at Hybrid Pub Scout Pod. Please visit our website, hybridpubscout.com, and while you're there, click join our troop to get our new guide, the HPS Guide to Picking Your Publishing Path. Margo, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me. This is lovely. And thanks for giving a rip about books.